All right, so here's how this works. This is the Friday Q&A, every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. That's California time. I'm answering your guys' questions. The first question that we've got today is on tithing. Are Christians <clears throat> supposed to tithe? And before I answer the question, I just want to preface it with this, with two things. One, we should answer this question or ask this question from the perspective of, God, I'm going to do whatever you want me to do, right? You want 10%, you want 30%, you want 90%, like it's yours, period, end of story. That, that's my heart, my attitude going into this thing. The question is, what is scripture actually telling me to do? And the second thing I want to mention is um, that I do want to do like a longer teaching on this topic of tithing in the future, where I go through kind of the Old and New Testaments and unpack them carefully. But that's going to be like a long teaching, and I know me, who knows when that'll happen, So because I have a big, big, giant, long list, and I'm always adding to it. So here's my shorter answer. Um, <clears throat> my short answer is this. Are Christians supposed to tithe? And by the way, I'm, I'm Pastor Mike Winger. And if you're not watching Benny Hinn live right now, you might be watching me, and you're welcome. <laughs> At any rate, are Christians supposed to tithe? Uh, y no. So, But it depends on what you mean by tithe. So the word tithe means 10%. A tithe, literally, tithe is tenth. It means a 10% a amount of your income. Are Christians told that, that their giving should be the amount of 10%? No. So are Christians supposed to tithe in that sense? No. But are Christians supposed to give? Oh, yes. Very much so. Very generously. That would be the answer. And there's, um, I'm going to go through scripture. I don't just want to tell you what I think here, but I want to show you in the word of God what it says. And I think probably the biggest pro-tithe verse in the Bible for, that you know pastors sometimes use is Malachi 3, verse 8. So we're going to look at that passage. We're going to look at Malachi because this is probably the number one thing. You'd be surprised to know that in the New Testament, there is no command in the New Testament for, for Christians who are Gentiles, who are not Jews, to tithe. Jesus spoke about tithing twice, but he's speaking to those who are under the law. He also spoke about bringing offerings to the temple, right? But that's for those who are under the law. We're not doing those things because we're not under the law. Well, <clears throat> probably the prominent passage is actually Old Testament, Malachi 3.8. And by the way, this first question came in through Facebook. The rest of the questions I'm going to take live right now. You guys can put your questions in. We take 20 questions today, and uh, at least I try to take 20. And we're already gathering them because time moves fast. So look, let's look at this. Will a man rob God, yet you say, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how, are we, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, God says, in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. That's all 10%. So that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. And then, of course, it goes on to say that God's going to bless them. So the people of Israel are under judgment, and God's like, one of the many issues that they have going on is that they're they're not giving him the tithe that he has commanded for them to give in the law, right? This is a violation of the law. Why is it that I'm not thinking this applies to me directly? Well, for one thing, he's talking about the nation of Israel. It's the whole nation of you. If we just open the Old Testament and we see the word you and we think that that means it applies to us, we're, we're not really honoring God's word because... He didn't say it to you, right? It's not, it's not, everything in the text is not written directly to you. Thank God, right? Because otherwise I'm very confused, right? I, I need to go to Jerusalem three times a year because it says you and go to Jerusalem three times a year. That's, that's, oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. It's not for you. Uh, this is actually under the Old Testament law. God is not not getting upset with them because there's a universal law that every human is supposed to give 10% to God all the time. But rather, it's because in the law of Moses, there was a specific command about tithing. And the Israelites are rejecting that. They're not doing that tithing thing. But it's there's more. It's tithes and offerings. Now, the offerings, if you're going to say we have to give 10% and you're going to base it off the phrase in Malachi, tithe, then you have to also include offerings because the same rebuke for tithes is a rebuke on offerings. Now, offerings worked like this. You had to bring um, the firstborn of every animal to the Lord. It belonged to God. Think about that. If you're a chicken farmer, the firstborn of every chicken has to go to the church. Our churches will be filled with chickens if 
we're gonna, if we're gonna obey this. Now it made sense back then for the Levites, and they don't have an inheritance in the land, and so it goes to 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 take care of them and all that sort of thing. But this is this is the offerings part, and people don't pay attention to that. They just take the tithes because they just want the cash. Anyway, they don't really want to fulfill what the law says. So they take some of it literally, 10%, but they take a whole bunch of it figuratively. For instance, in the Old Testament law, the tithe is not given to ministers and pastors. In the Old Testament law, the tithe is given to the Levites and the priests. And it's brought locally to the house of God or the temple. So if I'm going to say I'm under the Old Testament law of tithing, then I, and 10%, because it was 10%, then it's 10% now, then I need to then take that money and give it to the Jewish people and ask them to acquisition it for the Levites. That would be a fulfillment of Malachi 3.8. But, but some pastors are very inconsistent here. And I, I think that they're being driven by fear about them, their own paycheck, fear about their church, and maybe their love for ministry. They realize that if, you know, only, gosh, only 8% of our church even tithes. If you go out telling them they don't have to, we're going to end up closing our doors and this ministry is going to end. And I, I get that. Your, your church is being, perhaps your church is just being greedy and selfish with their money. But a 10% rule is not the, not the fix. It's not the fix. And so, yeah, if we, if we say um, we're under the law of 10% tithing, even though the New Testament never tells us we are, then why are we butchering the law and we're applying it to, to local churches and pastors and ministers rather than the Levites? If 10% is literally applicable, why isn't go, it goes to the Levites literally applicable? It's just arbitrary. We're just using what we want from the scripture and that's not healthy. So it went to the Levite and all that. Um, <clears throat> nowhere in the New Testament is tithing affirmed uh, for Christians you know, who are not under the law. Jesus affirms it, but that's he's preaching to Jews and that's clear if you look at the context. Jesus is almost always talking to Jews. Um, so what, what do I do about giving though in, in, um, in the Christian church? Like what is my attitude towards giving? Now I'll, I say all this and I say me and my wife give 10% to our church. And part of that is it's tradition. I just recognize this is pure tradition. It's something that in particular, my wife feels comfortable with that. She goes, I just don't feel comfortable not doing that, you know? And I'm, I'm like, I don't care. I'm, why? Because I'm not greedy. Okay. And so sure, we can give that. But then we also support other ministries and we also give, give money as we have it. We just give money to people who look like they need it. Because that's just what being a Christian is. Helping, helping those, the poor is huge in the New Testament. We're, we're even not only individually benefiting the poor, like James talks about, you're just going to give them food and clothing as you see they need things, but also pooling our resources through the local fellowship so that we might have funds that we can send to the poor. Also having funds to send to the persecuted church. That's another category we should be thinking about in our giving. Also taking care of the ministers we have. We have direct teaching in the New Testament that says that we're to support those who serve us and minister to us in spiritual things. And I think that should be applied on the local level. I think on the internet, like you watching me, don't feel guilty about this. Okay, <clears throat> the internet didn't exist back then. I can minister to hundreds of thousands of people in a month. I do not expect or want them all to give money to me as a I owe you, Mike. That I think that's inappropriate. I'm, and, and this is, I think, should be everyone's attitude. I think everyone should feel this way. I think primarily we're talking about those who minister to a local body of believers that they do need the support of those they're ministering to. At least it's right. It's good and right for them to get it. Although there's times where Paul would labor and he wouldn't accept money <clears throat> as part of his, his mission to people to show them that his, he's not about money. So he would just work twice as hard. He works his fingers to the bone. You know, he's preaching, uh, working all day, preaching all night kind of thing. And that's appropriate too. And there's seasons. I've done that for seasons as well. <clears throat> yeah, for like online ministries, we only need like a small percentage of the people who watch to actually offer any kind of support in order for us to function. That's the reality of the situation. And I think it's glorious that the dollars that go into like a ministry like mine or, you know, this kind of online thing, they're in a sense, they're stretched much farther because we're taking advantage of the free um, access we have through the internet to minister to people. So we are to give. Uh, ministers should it's right for them to be paid, right? Not to be super wealthy, just to be sustained and taken care of and not to be kept next to poverty level, but to be taken care of. I like to think of it as them living on the same level as the people in their community. I think that that's probably appropriate. All right, so that's my, my quick thoughts on tithing. Tithing, 10% is not required. Giving is absolutely something I'm supposed to do as a Christian, local fellowship and beyond. And I'm not gonna limit that to 10%. Not, that's actually... Reality, though, most Christians, I think, from statistics I've heard, give more like 3 to 4% of their income 
all together. All they're giving combined is like, I don't know, five, six, some, some smaller amount. So it's not like anyone's tithing anyways. <laughs> Y'all probably should be given a lot more. Um, all right, let's go to your guys' questions. That being said, and <clears throat> the first one up from the live chat today is from Spazzy Jazzy, who says, to what extent should Christians protect and retaliate? Should we do what we can to stop others from abusing others? Thoughts on David's Quran art. Okay, I don't know what David's Quran art is, so sorry, I can't comment on that. But <clears throat> how much should I protect and retaliate? And I like how you put that because those are two different issues. Let's talk about protect. Um, and you said, should we do what we can to stop others from abusing others? Let me start with just the Old Testament here. Just, just a quick overview of things. In the Old Testament, one of the things that God rebukes, as my memory serves, if memory serves, he rebukes Jewish and Gentile nations. And, and here's a key in the Old Testament. When God is rebuking Gentile nations for something, it means it's a requirement he has for all people. Don't say this is just for the Old Testament law for the Jews. He's rebuking Gentiles for this. It's something he wants everyone to do. And one of the things he rebukes them for is not defending the fatherless, the widows, not defending the victims of, um, of oppression. And that means that it is just a general truth of mankind that those who have power will protect those who do not. That's a good and godly and biblical thing. Now, pacifism, which, which rejects this, rejects that kind of real protection, I think that that, that is, is actually evil in some places. That pacifism taken to its full extent is actually wicked because it abandons your responsibility to protect other people. And, and I do think that we have a biblical case, a strong biblical case, that violence, even major radical violence, is sometimes entirely appropriate. Um, I say sometimes, obviously someone's going to twist this, but I'm not so much concerned about people who twist it as I am concerned about people who want to actually follow what scripture says. So for those who want to really follow, yeah, there's times where violence is right. And it's, and it's particularly when you are, not when you're just in the right, like you're wrong and I'm right so I can be violent to you. That would be like what's going on right now with like, say, some of the riot things that we see going on. It's <clears throat> my cause is so righteous that I can just be violent and it's justified. That's not that's not the kind of violence we're talking about. We're talking about um, self-defense, where you do you do minimal violence in order to achieve the defense of self or others. That kind of thing is appropriate, but it's minimal violence. A good balance of this is found in the New Testament. Um, well, let me actually I mentioned the Old Testament law real quick. So in in the Old Testament, if if a man kills another man, um, you know he's going to get the death penalty. But if the man kills him, kills another man in defense, in self-defense, he has no penalty of any kind. Okay, what does that say about self-defense? Okay, that's Old Testament law, but still it's a principle that we can apply. Now, the New Testament, Jesus tells his disciples when they go out evangelizing and witnessing and sharing town to town, not to take a sword, not to take anything with them. And, and even a money bag, even like a second pair of clothes. Like he said, just go out and he wants to teach them that God will provide and protect. That's an important lesson. But then later on, Jesus is, is right before his betrayal and he tells the disciples, earlier I told you don't take a money sack, don't take a tunic. Now I'm telling you, grab what you've got. And if, and if you don't have a sword, go get one. That's a big deal. Like, I don't think Jesus is, this isn't like some hyperbole thing. Jesus is like, if you don't have a sword, go buy one and have it ready. I think Jesus is telling them to be ready to defend themselves. And I think that's the clear context. I don't see a better way of interpreting this. So right after that event, we can balance this out so people don't abuse it. Right after that event, they go into the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is praying and Judas comes and betrays him. And the troops, the the guard that the temple um, controllers that, you know, the Sadducees, these people had control of, they come and they arrest Jesus. Now, this is a volatile, scary moment because Jesus' disciples are few in the garden and they're outnumbered by the many who are coming to take them. And one of Jesus' major concerns, people sometimes miss this, is that even though he's willingly going to be betrayed, one of his major concerns is that these people are not hurt. That's why they're told to take a sword. Because, G okay, they come with, you know, basically with pitchforks and torches effectively, right? They're coming to take Jesus by force. Jesus goes willingly to them. Now there's this tense moment. What happens next? 
Well, Peter pulls out his sword and he hacks off the high priest's servant's ears. Malchus is the guy's name. Hacks off the guy's ear. And Jesus stops him. He told Peter to have a sword, but now he stops him. And he says, you know, Peter, don't, don't do that, right? Because this isn't self-defense. I'm going according to God's will to martyrdom. But that is not something I want you to fight. But he still has him carry the sword. So the balance is like this. Being armed and ready to defend yourself in a godly way is a healthy thing. But preemptively striking because you're just angry about something bad that's happening. Or, or preemptively striking even though it's, it's clear that God's will is for this martyrdom to take place. Those types of scenarios are bad. So yes, like if, if, um, if I'm walking on the street and I see somebody, some lady being beaten by some guy. And I jump on the guy's back and I get him in a chokehold and I punch him in the eye 20 times. I did the right thing. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. And I'm sure that that lady would think I did the right thing. Now, the moment the guy yields and submits genuinely, not like playing possum, um, that's when that's when it's over. That's when it's over. And um, and that's why I have three black belts. In uh, no, I don't. I don't have any black belts. <clears throat> that's why I carry a sword. No, um, I don't do that either. But but yeah, I hope that that helps. Um, Blake has a question. Someone wants to disciple me and is asking for payment citing oh interesting citing luke 8 1 through 3 galatians 6 6 1 timothy 5 8 5 18 acts 2 42 second samuel 23 8 through 17 is being discipled similar to going to school that you need to pay for um so in our giving the scripture tells us something that that affects this and i'm of course just reading a few words of your scenario so my understanding of your scenario is this scripture says that we're to give but not by compulsion it's one thing to say, hey, this person's been ministering to me. I want to voluntarily give. I'm also taught in scripture that this is a good thing to support those who bless me. It's totally different when someone puts a paywall between you and their ministry that is not meant to be something uh, that they should have to pay for, to be honest. And so someone's like, I will disciple you, but it's going to cost you this much. Um, move along, man. You don't want that guy discipling you. Like you really don't want that person discipling you. I don't know what they're going to do to you but it probably won't be good. I say, move along, Blake. It's great that they said that because now, you've, now you know that they're not the one for you. Paul the Apostle, to avoid causing stumbling blocks in those he ministered to, he actually refused to ask for money when he was ministering to the people in Corinth. He wouldn't take a check. He wouldn't take anything from them because he realized that it just, this sends the wrong message. This is like one of the reasons why I don't allow um, super chats on YouTube. I'm like, that's weird, right? Like here I'm preaching the word of God, I'm teaching, and it's just, it conflicts with my heart and my vision for this ministry to have like, oh, thank you for the $100 super chat. You know, I, you know, I don't do that. I don't have a bunch of, you know, personally, I don't have a Patreon that allows me to like give special favors for people who donate to the ministry. This is just my way of doing ministry. Just like Paul had, you know, his method in Corinth was for his reasons and they were good, even though not every pastor has to do that. Um, my thoughts on YouTube are, look, you know, people can go and they can give on the website, BibleThinker.org. I'm not going to push it really hard. I'm not going to even enable super chats. I'm not going to do shout outs to people who give. I'm not going to do um, Patreon where you have tiers of giving and you have special access to special content if you give more. I That's not what this ministry is about. Um, and so... Yeah, move along, move along. It, just because it's right to pay those who minister to you doesn't mean you go into a contract in order to be ministered to by them. If they don't freely offer it, um, something's wrong with them. <clears throat> now, it's different if, if there's a cost to them to minister to you. So, like, say it's a book, and the book is a discipleship book, and you're paying 20 bucks for it. Well, like, books actually cost money. I, I mean, that's understandable, right? It actually costs money to make the book, print the book, send it out to you, or to create a distribution network for some ministry. Maybe they do. I, I use free. I use YouTube and Facebook and, and, and a website that's pretty cheap to run. So there needs to be no cost here. Um, Caleb McCurdy says, I love your ministry, Mike. Thank you, Caleb. Uh, Hebrews 10, 26 through 27 seems to teach a non-merciful judgment to those who reject the gospel, but know it's truth. Does it mean mercy will be shown to those who haven't heard? All right, let's look at that passage together. Hebrews, it's interesting how many questions we get on Hebrews 10. And this is a, a different one than probably the typical on Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 6. And I pr there's a good chance I'm going to do Hebrews next after the Mark series, which will only take another three or five or 10 years to finish. Um, 
Okay, Hebrews 10.26, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume adversaries. Now, I think people, and now this isn't your question, but I think people stumble over the phrase sin willfully because they think it's a broad term that just means anything that's, any sin that is willful. But that's not the context of Hebrews 10, I don't believe at all. Like, I'm just being sincere here, I don't believe that. A longer study would hash it out better, but I'll just say this. The sin willfully is those who hear the message of the gospel of Christ, they know that it's true, and then they choose to reject it. That's the willful sin here. Um, and the context of Hebrews is saying, there's a parallel here. Those who heard the um, the law proclaimed from Mount, Mount uh, um, I was going to say Mount Zion, but that's not it. From, uh, from I, I'm just totally brain farting right now. Anyways, they heard, you know, the law from Mount Sinai being proclaimed that they had a stricter judgment because they saw the fire, they, they, they saw the flames and the smoke, they heard the voice of God, they knew it was true. So there's extra judgment for them if they reject it. So those who hear the gospel and, and know the truth of it, as you're saying, they have stricter judgment. And um, yeah, so sin willfully here is not just about any willful sin, okay? A, a lot of our sin is willful. That doesn't mean we're not saved. Yeah, but there's just terrifying expectation. There's no sacrifice other than Jesus. You can't go back to the Old Testament law. There doesn't remain some other version of getting to God, okay? You, you just, you need Jesus and you rejected that. So all you have is judgment ahead. So the question is like, does that mean there's very, very judgment? Does that mean that judgment's not the same for everybody? Like hell's a different experience or, or perhaps I would say the day of judgment has different like extremeness depending on the, the life you lived. And I'd say, absolutely. I think this is clearly taught in the text of scripture. In the Bible, Jesus says that the one who sinned without knowing will be beaten with few stripes, but the one who sinned with knowing will be beaten with many stripes. Okay, the, the idea here is not only sin, but knowledge is factored into judgment. And we do this in, in our lives all the time. Your kid does something wrong, you, you might punish them. But if they do something wrong, right after you told them not to do it, that's a greater issue, isn't it? I just said don't do that and you did it. Now it's a different issue, right? You did it with a sort of full knowledge. So there's bad behavior, then there's bad behavior with full knowledge. And we are judged perfectly. So God factors in to his, his perfect judgment everything we knew, everything we didn't know, everything we pretended we didn't know. <laughs> he factors in everything and he judges us absolutely perfectly. And this is kind of why it's fearful to fall into the hands of the living God because I have so many sins. I have so many sins and I'm not the good person that people think I am. I mean, this is true of me. I'm not good. I mean, in and of myself, I'm, I'm, I'm capable of falling into every, every sin and every horrible thing. And I have a track record in my life of embarrassing things I wouldn't want to tell anybody about. And I think that if if we recognize that about ourselves, then we realize how much we need the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's hugely important. So I, I hope that that helps. Um, yeah, very consistent biblical principle that we're judged based on not only the, the right and wrongness of our actions, but on our knowledge and awareness of it at the time. Um, let's see, Blake has a question. Oh, that was, oh, I'm way past that. All right, number five here. Joel Holmberg says, hi, Pastor Mike. I grew up Lutheran. But lately I've had doubts about how biblical Lutheran doctrine is. Would you consider covering it sometime? God bless you, your ministry. You've been a huge blessing. I'll definitely consider it, Joel uh, or Hoel, depending on where you live. I um, And AJ, I'll need you to send the rest of the questions when you have a chance. I don't, I, I haven't looked into modern Lutheran issues recently. And one of the problems I have with, with uh, covering these topics without a lot of study and prep is that within Lutheranism, you have um, you have an identity, Lutheran, that has changed over time. There's classical sort of historical Lutheranism, then there's what's going on now, modern day. And then that is splinter group into different various things. And so even when you say Lutheran doctrine, you might be referring just to what your local church holds, but not perhaps what is historical. Or maybe you do have the historical perspective and I'm thinking about like the more liberalized version uh, within Lutheranism. That's always possible as well. All right, I'm, <clears throat> I'm going to go to question number six now. This is Christian Liang. And while I do that, quick announcement. We've got all the 20 questions I'll be able to handle today. So if you're you know, wanting to put your questions in the live chat, you can, you can hold those now. I've got them all filled up. And I'm sorry I can't get to everybody's questions, but 
we do this every week so I could at least get to a bunch of people. <laughs> and uh, over the year, I guess, what, 52 weeks and 20, let's say I did 50 a week, and that's was like 2,000 questions or something. Is my mouth right? Christian Liang says, should we repent and ask the Lord for forgiveness of sins we commit in our dreams? Thanks, Pastor Mike. Um, let me say that your will is very important in the issue of sin. If you have a dream and something sinful is happening in the dream, then I don't think that that's something you had to repent of. If you, in your dream, were yielding your will to that wicked thing, then there's something to repent of. And I do think that's an important distinction because I've, I've had both experiences. And I, th I imagine most people have, even if we don't talk about it much. I, I think that sometimes if, if the thing happened in your dream uh, without your control and without your will, then it's not something that you need to repent of. It's something you need to recover from, <laughs> right? Like to, to get past. If you are yielding your will, yielding your heart to it, then that's different. And um, I think you should know the difference. It shouldn't be that hard to, to know the difference between those two things. Andrej Polak says, what is your practical advice for some young man, uh, for, for, young, for a young man in a small local church with a growing call to do the ministry of the word? It's a circle without ordained ministers, only lay preachers. Thank you. Um, my advice would be some things to think about. Um, teach verse by verse and book by book. Now, that doesn't mean you have to start in Genesis and then after that teach Exodus and then Leviticus and Numbers. But I do think that there is massive, massive, massive personal benefit to a minister in your own understanding of God's word when you teach a book verse by verse. This makes you deal with what scripture says, whereas if you do it purely topical, especially if you aren't, in fact, here's my thought. Anybody can teach verse by verse if they'll just put the study time in. Teaching topical is actually the harder thing to do because it requires you to know the word of God so well that you're able to understand what it teaches about a whole topic. That's actually a lot harder, but it's, but sadly, the easier thing to do badly is topical studies. Topical studies are easier to do poorly because I could always pull verses out of context, grab them, put them together, and then boom, I've got my talking points for my sermon. But when I do a verse-by-verse -verse study through a chapter or through a section of the Bible, um, then I'm just sort of forced to have to say what it says because if I'm contradicting the text, it becomes obvious as I'm studying. And that's why I want you to do that. That's why I would say for a young minister, you know, do that. Like the first book I ever really taught, like really taught, was Galatians. And I read um, commentaries on it and spent lots of hours of studying on it. And it was massively beneficial for me in my growth and understanding the Old Testament, the New Testament, the very idea of the gospel. Like I got grounded in understanding the gospel by studying and teaching Galatians. I think that that is huge. That is huge. So my advice is do a whole book and do it verse by verse in your studies and your teaching. The nice thing about teaching is that it forces you to study better than you would if you weren't. At least that's how it impacts me, I think. That would be that, that advice. Um, the next thing I would suggest is this. Um, over and over again, in every opportunity, root out pride. Pride will absolutely undercut and ruin you. And the enemy will seek to sow seeds of pride in a young minister by making him compete with the people around him compete with the other people so that you're comparing yourself and you, you actually see other people who serve and do ministry as though they're your competition. That's pride. That's a huge sign that massive pride is taking root in the heart and it happens all the time. Um, humility, which allows you to say to, to scripture, you know, my theology might be wrong and as I study, I might find that out and I will delight when that happens. That's another thing. And the last thing I'll mention is this. Avoid something that happens to young preachers a lot, which is the, the, the desire to either please the crowd or to convict the crowd. To think that a good Bible study is when I really convict people. And so you're going to always hover around the issue of pray more and, uh, and give more and serve more and repent more. And the, these are the things you'll always kind of enter into all your Bible studies. And I think that, th that you should... <laughs> This, this may be counterproductive. People may not like your teaching as much because what I'm going to say next. Don't teach a good sermon. Teach the truth of the passage. 
people may not like your studies as much. But I think that's what being faithful is. All right, Folky has a question. How should I understand the warning against apostasy in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6? It's hard to believe the experiences described do not refer to true believers, yet salvation isn't earned. So how could it be lost? I'm going to save my answer to this question for when I get to Hebrews 6 in another 15 years. Um, it won't be that long, I'm kidding. But, um, but Hebrews 6 is probably the most challenging passage in the Bible for me when it comes to this particular topic of apostasy. It really is. And I'm not ready to plant my flag and say, here's my answer. I just am not sure. So I'm sorry, Folky, that I can't be of better help to you on this topic. Like I really am. I want to just give you an answer that helps. But um, that doesn't mean you have to give up. You know, I don't know if you've spent time on this, looking up commentaries, listening to different teachers talk about it, trying to weigh the pros and cons of their different views. But that's what I'd recommend you do. Yeah. So hopefully I'll be able to give you a better answer in the future. Jason Staub says, if the Bible says works born from within equals no boasting pardon me or bad fruit works born from within equals no boasting or bad fruit works born from spirit equal good fruit why then do we think that faith born from within prior to regeneration is fruitful faith jason this is a complicated question would not faith born from our fallen nature be insufficient wouldn't we be incapable of bearing good fruit faith similar to saying we had good works alone um, okay, so this is kind of, uh, I'm assuming Jason's probably a Calvinist, right? So Calvinist teaching, to catch the audience up in case you don't know, Calvinist teaching is that regeneration precedes faith. This is a very important point in Calvinism. And I can't tell you how many hours I had looked into Calvinism before I found this out and the light bulb went on. Okay, so this helps you distinguish Calvinism from non-Calvinism or, or, or me. <laughs> and so regeneration precedes faith. The Calvinist teaching is that because man is so depraved and so wicked, that even when he hears the gospel, even when the word of God is, 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 is being preached to him, even if the Holy Spirit externally is like, is like pulling on him, you know, drawing in a sense, then he will always say no because he's just so wicked. He'll, he'll always say no. He can't believe God. He can't trust God. He can't turn and repent and, and trust. So their belief is that what happens is the Holy Spirit actually saves you. You become born again, indwelt with the Spirit, you're regenerated. And now because you're a new person, out of that new nature, you can't help but believe. You automatically trust in Christ. You're, of course you're going to believe. So this is why these, the unsaved only has one real option, and that is rejecting God. And, and then the regenerated only has one option, and that is accepting and believing in God. And so they have irresistible grace and total depravity. Those concepts, which ultimately comes down to regeneration precedes faith. Now, my view is that you believe and then you are regenerated. It's the opposite of that view. What he's, what Jason seems to be asking here, Jason, you seem to be asking, how is it, Mike, that um, if, if faith is a good thing, how is that good thing coming from somebody who has such a wicked nature? But this assumes... Um, this may assume a, a more about total depravity than, than I would grant, uh, actually. But let me say this. I have a whole video called um, Why I Think Calvinism is Unbiblical, where this, what your question is, it highlights the same issue, is that in my opinion, Calvinists often try to turn faith into a work, and everyone misunderstands me on this. So please listen carefully. If you're a Calvinist, you don't think faith is a work. I understand that. But... Your way of refuting people like me is to try to act like, in my view, faith has to become a work. So you're saying faith is like a good fruit. Faith is like a good, kind of like a good work. And therefore, God has to save you first before you could do a good work like faith. Well, faith is not a work. Now, you use the word fruit here. You try to avoid the word work. But that's, the, that's what it's ultimately getting at. Because you said works born from the Spirit are good fruit. That being said, if I haven't lost anybody just yet, which I hope I haven't. <laughs> As everybody just signs off. It's just, just complicated and annoying. Um, but here's the here's the deal. Faith is not a work, no matter where it comes from. That's a principle I believe. Faith is counter to works. And not just because God gives you faith. It's, it's counter to works because faith isn't working. This is clear in Romans. Paul makes it painfully clear, right? It's either in Galatians 2. It's either by faith or by works. Faith isn't working. Abraham believed God and God accounted it to him for righteousness. It, that's, that wasn't working. He had no, he did no works in that regard. If it's by faith, it's no longer of works. Otherwise, faith is no longer faith. 
If it's by works, it's no longer by faith. Otherwise, works are no longer work. And that's Romans eleven six. I'm paraphrasing for you here. That's This is clearly taught in scripture. Faith is not a work. That being said, the objection that a sinner can't believe in God because believing in God is a good thing and sinners just don't do good things, that is a bad objection because faith is not a work. So that objection doesn't work. Um, consequently, in addition to that, you can also say without being a Calvinist, you could say that God is initiating faith in the heart of a believer, right? Or a non-believer, I guess. He's initiating it. Because hearing uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So I hear the word of God. It's, it's, it's instigating. It's initiating. But then I'm making a I am making a decision to believe. I don't, this doesn't seem complicated to me. And I don't understand why it is to, to so many people. God speaks and I say, wow, I heard what you said. That's the initiation. I'm going to trust you, Lord. That's the faith. And then comes the salvation. So that, that would be my, my response to that. Go watch my video on, on, you know, why I think Calvinism is unbiblical and realize, I mean, if you just listen carefully, you'll realize a third of the comment section is missing my point. <laughs> Even though I thought I made it really clear. You make you wonder why so many people missed the point. Um, number 10, New Creation Coaching says, some folks on Facebook were flipping out about the idea of Q that scholars talk about as a potential source material. It's another gospel. Can you speak to what the idea of Q as used in scholarship discussion is and help calm some nerves? Yeah, so I, I mean, I was bothered by Q the first time I heard about it. Let me explain to you guys what Q is. So Q is, it, is um, it, well, okay, it comes from the category of of uh, study called textual criticism, where they're looking at the, the ancient texts of the New Testament and they're trying to figure out where everything came from, right? Like, where did Mark get this information? Where did Luke get this information? Um, in, in some cases, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they overlap. They have the same information in all three gospels. And that's interesting. And so are, are Matthew and Luke getting their information from Mark? Or, or are they getting it not from Mark, not from his written text, but from some other thing that Mark, Matthew, and Luke all had access to? Now, I don't know the right answers to all these questions, um, but I think primarily we want to say it doesn't matter. This isn't Q, the, the question of Q isn't a question that impacts our understanding of the inspiration of Scripture. There's no, there's no problem with the, the writers of the Gospels using other sources. In fact, we want them to use others. We don't want them to be making things up, right? We want them to either be eyewitnesses or to have had experiences with eyewitnesses that they are recording. And most importantly, whether they are you know, copying, maybe there's like a, a, a sayings of Jesus document somewhere and, and then they've wrote and written down, a, maybe Matthew did. Maybe Matthew wrote down a bunch of sayings of Jesus and as Mark's writing, he's, he's, make, he's taking from those sayings to make sure that he gets the wording right. I mean, that could hypothetically be the case. The most important thing is that they're inspired by the Spirit when they write and that is irre it's irrelevant about whether Q is a document or not. So Q is, is a, a document that is, that is said to potentially exist. We have no copy of Q. We don't have proof of its existence. It's a, it's a supposition. It's a, hey, maybe this Q thing exists and it would explain why content here, here, and here looks similar because there's a source behind it all that's a written source. Now it could be an oral source, maybe it's a written source. So the word Q stands for the German word quell, quell, which just means source. So when they say Q is just source. It, this is interesting. I don't think it should concern us theologically. I think we can be interested in it. Um, I'm a little skeptical of it, but neither, but I'm not qualified to comment, to be honest, as far as making it, you know, telling you what you should believe about it. Uh, S.M. Hart says, hello, Mike, what are your thoughts as to professed accounts of people selling books about visiting either heaven or hell? I mean, my honest thoughts, S.M. Hart, is that I'm very skeptical of these things. I hear of, you know, well, okay, I've, I've had um, a teacher of mine in the past who talked about his experience dying and experiencing God. And I'm not skeptical of him at all. He has heart issues. He's always had major heart problems. They thought he might not live for very long. His, his life expectancy is pretty short because of it. Well, he was on the table one time at the hospital. This is the story he tells. And this is one I'm not skeptical of at all. And he's on the table and he, his heart stops. And the monitors are there. And they just, you know, start 
going off, and he's still awake. His heart has stopped, but he still has enough oxygen in his, in his brain to be awake and aware. So for a moment, he's there, and the nurse stops. The nurse looks at him and goes, are you okay? And he goes, yeah, I'm fine. What? And boom, he's gone. And he was out for some extended period of time. Uh, he had legally died. And he says that he was just in the presence of God worshiping. And it was beautiful. It was the most wonderful thing. And it took away all his fear of death. And he just was in God's presence praising the Lord. What's interesting is when he told the story, he told it to a small little group of people because he was just sharing about his life. He didn't write a book. He's not making money off it. He's not going on tour. He just told the story because it was such comfort to him. I have no reason to doubt that. There's nothing unbiblical about being absent from the body and being present with the Lord. <laughs> that's, that's biblical. So I, I don't have any skepticism about that. But when people start giving you all these crazy detailed accounts, and then sometimes the details don't really match what I think I should expect based on scripture, and they're just sometimes weirdos, they're just generally weird, weird people, okay? Like the kind of people who you'd be, you wouldn't want to buy a car from. You know, I'm like skeptical of that. They're making millions and millions of dollars or they're getting a whole lot of press and attention. And so that creates a lot of motive to fabricate or to exaggerate stories. Also, the one example we have of someone going to heaven and coming back is Paul the Apostle. And he talks about this in the Bible. But he says that he heard there, he won't even talk about it in first person. He goes, I know a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. He was caught up to be with the Lord. And he heard words there that are inexpressible. And Paul won't even tell you the things he experienced in heaven. He doesn't write a book about it and go on tour. He won't even tell you. He says these things are unlawful to speak. It's just wrong to tell you all the stuff that I saw. I don't see that attitude in, in the people writing books. And so that makes me very skeptical about them. So skeptical because they seem, I'm just being honest, right? They seem weird. What, as a youth pastor, I once drove around with the students. And we live in Southern California. We live in L.A. County. And L.A. County has a lot of weird people. It's reality. Um, and so we would do these Tuesday uh, Bible studies, Tuesday mornings before school, gather with the students, and we would get in the Word for like 40 minutes. And then I'd drop them all off at school. Why did I ever do that? It's crazy. <laughs> I'm not a morning person. Anyway, um, we would do all that. And then on the way to school, we would occasionally say, hey, why is that guy sketchy? We'd just be driving around and go, why is that guy sketchy? Now I have young ladies in the car and I want them to have their radar out for when they see weird, scary people. And so we would just identify, oh, he's, he's weird because he's walking around talking to himself, because he's wearing a thick jacket on a hot summer day, because, you know, there's like these certain things that are weird. Look, there's just weird things about some of these people. And if you can't tell, then I'm sorry. Um, some of these people. Um, there's, there's a financial reason that they might go be motivated. And there's sometimes unbiblical things that they say. Okay, that's enough of a reason for me to be very skeptical about this kind of stuff. All right, Jesse Crocus says, In John 3, what did he mean by unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God? Is he referring to born of water to baptism or is it of actual birth? Um, man, Jesse, I'm trying to remember right now. There's like, I did some extensive studies on John 3 on this exact topic. And, you know, I'm going to recommend... Um, Jesse, and I'm just gonna, I'm not going to try and summarize it because it's kind of complicated, the response. But Michael Heiser has a podcast, and I don't agree with everything Heiser does, but I think he has some really, I've said it before, I think he has some really great information. So if you look up Michael Heiser's podcast on John 3 or on, on um, Nicodemus, Jesus' Jesus's discussion with Nicodemus, he actually goes through scholarship and talks about different options of how people have interpreted this passage. The one option he actually rips on the most is those who interpret it as being, I think, uh, water baptism that you have to be water baptized to be saved. But he puts it in, inside the um, context of Judaism at the time. And that's what's important there. Can't remember off the top of my head enough details to share it with you. So, so check that out. I don't know if someone knows the link, they can share it. If I find the link, I'll put it in the video description down below for those who are interested. Steph T says, is being charismatically slain in the spirit biblical, falling backwards, animalistic sounds, etc.? If it is, how do we discern someone being slain in the spirit versus demonically possessed? Um, we kind of have to, have to answer this in a couple layers. So when you say, is it biblical, do you mean, is it taught in the Bible or is it biblically permissible? Like it's not forbidden in scripture. Okay, well, I don't see where being slain in the spirit is forbidden in the Bible, but it's definitely not taught in the Bible. And the examples that people come up with show me how much they have decided ahead of time they're going to teach this, and now they're looking for somewhere in the Bible. When Jesus speaks to the guards, at, you know, and, and, they, and they fall, where they're like, we're come for Jesus, and they fall over. This is in Gethsemane. 
this is not slain in the spirit. These people are not filled with the spirit. They're not impacted by God in a positive way, right? This is just a declaration of the power and authority of Christ. We don't see it happening later on in, in, in the, even in the extensive stuff where Paul's talking to the Corinthians about the work of the spirit in their families and in their lives. He doesn't mention being slain in the spirit. We don't, so we don't see it mentioned in places we might expect it. The only example we have that people offer is a bad example of kind of like a judgment related slain in the spirit. It's not meant to be unfilled. We also have another problem. So is it biblically permissible in that category? So it's not taught in scripture. Is it permissible? In that category, my problem here is that scripture says that um, the fruit of the spirit is self-control. And yet there aren't those. And I was taught this when I was a teenager, when I visited um, uh, Anaheim Vineyard, and which, which in many ways is a great church. Okay? Do you hear me? Because I can disagree with somebody and not be condemning their fellowship. But one of the things that I learned there, whether they meant to teach it or not, was that you would know you were filled with the spirit when you lost control. When you, when you couldn't control yourself and you spoke in tongues, or you couldn't control yourself and you started shaking and twitching for hours. When you couldn't control yourself and you fell over and then you couldn't get back up. I wanted that so bad. Never happened to me. Not like that. Years later, I um, spoke in tongues. Not with interpretation, but it was a spiritually powerful thing um, that ministered to my life in a really desperate, needful time but never there. There, I felt like I was just encouraged to fake things, um, to be honest. And that's my problem here. I think a lot of the slain in the spirit churches are just encouraging massive fakery in the name of Christ. And I think that a lot of the people who don't, who aren't indoctrinated fully into those fellowships, they know it. And I think it, the, the world sees it and they think you're crazy. And there's a reason. So I don't think slain in the Spirit is taught in the Bible, and I don't think that it's even consistent with what I read about the work of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Even when it comes to speaking in tongues, here, let me give you some more, more examples. Paul suggests that the person speaking in tongues has the willpower to stop at any time. Think about that. Because he says, if two people are speaking, let the first one be quiet and let the next one talk. Well, this means that you have control. When he says only two or three people at a time in the congregation at a gathering, and only if the people are there are informed, and only if there's interpretation, this, this all requires self-control. You're not being overtaken. You're not being overpowered by the Spirit to make you do these things. The same thing with prophecy. Prophecy is, is, has regulations and rules which only work if the person does have control over themselves and aren't being overtaken by the Holy Spirit and losing control. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control, and that is something that um, I think is inconsistent with being slain in the Spirit. Now, could God still do what he wants? He could. But excuse me, I'm not going to teach a church-wide practice because God could do that if he wanted to. I'm not going to make doctrine based out of thin air because God could do it if he wanted to. I think that is reckless. So there's my thoughts on that. I hope they're helpful to you. I don't think we should be, be judging or, or, or trying to divide from people who hold other views on this topic. But I do think their views are incorrect and unhealthy for them and for people who witness them. Only in Antarctica has a question. As an unemployed Christian, I feel convicted that I should not work at the cannabis sector despite there are, there are so many job opportunities now. As a Christian, can I apply to this sector or not? I think that um, uh, I, I don't actually understand the ins and outs of the cannabis sector. I know that some, in some cases they're processing for medical purposes that are real medical purposes, not the, not the cheese ball like, hey, doc, my back hurts. I need some pot. Like, not that, but like real medical things. Um, uh, nor do I know if you could get a job where you're just, you know, working for uh, those who do, as I understand it, could be wrong here, the, um, the, the oil that doesn't have or the pills that don't have the THC or the, the high inducing element in them and things like that. So there may be an option, a way to navigate that. But here's the bottom line. Romans 14 is what I want you to read, only in Antarctica. <laughs> Please read Romans 14. And here it teaches us that whatever is not of faith is going to be sin or... If your conviction is that oh, I, I just can't do this in all good conscience before the Lord, then don't do it. Then don't do it. That's important. That's important. Now, if your conscience is truly clear and you know that, that this is something you can do unto the Lord, then you you should move forward. Um, unless you're mistaken, of course, but God give you wisdom on that. So read Romans 14, please, and don't violate your conscience because that is a pretty big deal that we don't violate our consciences. You might even be wrong. Maybe it's okay for you to do it, but your conscience just won't let you. 
then you need to honor that. Because in that, you would be, in your heart, going against God. Because in your conscience, it would be wrong. Crystal has a question. Many, many are prophesying right now. It seems like the Lord is pouring out his spirit just like he prophesied. What are your thoughts on that? Um, Crystal, I know a lot of people are, are doing it, and I'm not sure if it's because we're in crazy days. See, what would have got me is if many were prophesying and their prophecies were provably coming to pass. That gets me. But, like, look at the YouTube space. There are... I'm going to use harsh words here. I'm just trying to think if I should. <laughs> I'll soften it a bit. <laughs> there are some YouTube channels, Christian Christian YouTube channels, that offer um, shallow, clickbait, vague prophecy promises all day long. And they do really well. It's kind of sad. What I'm saying is, this year is a great year for false prophets. And if there are real prophets in the midst, I very much want to know it. But you know what? They're going to have to prove themselves. And you should have the same attitude. And not just prove themselves by getting lucky one time. Or telling me a story. Well, six months ago, I said this. Nobody, I mean, it's not recorded anywhere, but trust me. And I have friends who will back me up. Well, okay. If God wants me to trust you, then he's going to have, you know, he's going to have to give me the same kind of evidence he gave for the prophets in the Bible when they prophesied things and those things really did take place and then the people all knew, okay, that he's legit, right? But they didn't just hear stories about how the guy prophesied. I think some of you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> anyway, um, Selnor, and I'm going to move quick now because we're running out of time. Selnor says, Hi, Pastor Mike. I've heard you talk about annihilationism. Could you please expand on why you think it's not biblical? Does it affect any other doctrines? Can we disagree? I think that annihilationism stems, here's my quick 60 second answer and and way more needs to be said and this is not my full answer i'm just trying to give you a couple things uh annihilationism it comes from the 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 principle that man is um conditionally immortal and by that they mean conditionally existing forever i don't think that immortal means existing forever and so if, if you don't think that, then you could, even, you could even say we have conditional immorality, but that doesn't mean that we exist forever. It doesn't mean we exist forever. I mean, or I think I reversed what I was saying there, but you could say we have conditional immorality. I could affirm that. And by immorality, I mean eternal life, the fullness of life that Jesus gives us, that that's real immorality. And, and hell, if it exists, if you go on existing forever, isn't immorality, immortality. I keep saying immorality. Immortality. Um, yeah, so that, that's one problem. Another problem is that I think that the parallels between heaven and hell that Jesus gives, that they're both everlasting in the same sense, I think that that kind of rules out annihilationism and that the answer is that, well, the, well, the person's not there, but the, the, the results of the punishment are everlasting. I think that that's um, insufficient. I don't think that that is what the text is saying. I think that that's a, a juke around what Jesus seems to be saying. So there's two points that I'll offer. Matt Bach says, I've heard Calvinists say that God is not guilty for sin he decrees because his purposes are good. This seems like a version of the ends justify the means. Is this a biblical way of thinking? Um, I don't know if I can comment on it being an end, a version of ends justify the means. But here's my view. If Calvinism is true, which I don't believe that it is in its, in its uh, distinct, distinctive teachings, then... I would agree that God is not guilty. But my, my, my statement wouldn't be, God's not guilty because the sin he decrees is according to his good purposes. Rather, I would just say, he's God. He's perfect. He's, he is goodness. He cannot be guilty. Now, I, on this side of heaven, don't understand perhaps why, why he's decreeing these things. I don't get it. But I don't feel that I have to explain it. And I think as a Calvinist, I would probably my theodicy would default to the not to the for his glory theodicy. I think I would more lean on the theodicy or the explanation of the problem of evil, of um, the noceum or the skeptical theism, which which apparently is not actually technically a theodicy. It, it's actually because it's not an explanation. It's a it's a it's a challenge to the very idea that you need a theodicy, right? Skeptical theism, which is saying, and I did this in a recent video on my top atheist best arguments against God video that was like a week and a half ago, two weeks ago. So the, 
in that video, I dealt with theodicy. The whole last chunk of the video was about theodicy. Check it out. I, I would go to the skeptical theism theodicy if I was a Calvinist, which I'm not. Um, and I do think this, that the, that actually it's, an, it's a non-theodicy. I think that that non-theodicy is actually probably a better path for them. And it's, it is a legitimate approach to the problem of evil itself. So um, would it be the ends justify the means? I would just say, you know, who, who am I to judge God? Which is legit. Like, who, who am I to judge God? What do I think I am judging God? God, let me look at your works from my human perspective and tell you what I think of them. Hmm. I disapprove. You were evil for doing that. I, I think that this is this is an incredible height of arrogance. I think the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear isn't just the terror of judgment. It's, it's the reverence of who God is. God is good. It's like his very nature. He is good. If there is, a, if there is such a thing as good, it's because God is good. If you, if you can think... If you think you can judge God, it's only because he's good, which means you, you can't. All right. Tion Bai says, what do you think of grace community disobeying California governing, government with keeping the church open since we are told to obey government, but also to meet together as a church? Tion Bai, this is something I haven't spoken much on. And the reason for that is because um, I'm still confused about the right answer here. Um, I'm not totally convinced that, that rebellion is the right, right thing to do right now. Neither am I convinced it's not. Now, because I'm a little bit on the fence, I'm going to default to obedience. So that's what I'm doing right now. My Sunday night service meets outdoors, and I, I don't like it. Nobody likes it. <laughs> but there it is. Um, but the questions we have are like, you know, how, if, you know, if, if, if grace is justified in meeting outdoors, if um, we have a true command to, to gather on Sundays and that, and that it's actually a violation of God's will for us to not gather on Sundays like that. Um, of course, his way of defending this is like, well, we're preaching the gospel of Christ. This 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 falls in line with the apostles in the book of Acts saying we're not we we have no, no choice but to continue preaching the gospel of Christ. And I think that's a strong case. There's a strong case for the church will keep gathering whether you like it or not. Okay, that's a strong case. But what about gathering indoors? What about mass gatherings instead of small gatherings? What about recoordinating that kind of thing? Um, they could simply say, look, our church is big. We don't ha we functionally can't do that, okay? In order for us to honor Christ with our calling, we do have to gather indoors. I think you have a, seems to me they have a strong case for that as well. Now, now the question is, um, should we then rebel against the government? Well, the one thing I didn't talk about yet is, is how dangerous is COVID? Like, am I going to get people in my congregation killed? How scary is this thing? And on this, um, I'm just not sure what the right answer is, right? I'm, I'm not with those who think that this is just a conspiracy. And I may lose subscribers for saying this, but it, but if you're so entrenched in this issue that you can disagree with me about theology, but not COVID, <laughs> then you need perspective, right? From as far as what I can tell, COVID is, it's not just another flu. It's a legitimate, dangerous threat to human life that is significant. However, from what I can tell, it's not as dangerous and as significant as a lot of people are making it out to be. And so that's what puts me on the fence. Ooh, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. And to say that, oh, well, all the old people who die were already going to die anyways. Well, that's not true. My mother, who I love deeply, she has COPD. She will probably live many, many years. She has treatment that really helps her. She's probably going to live many, many years. Her doctor tells her, if you get COVID, you will die. Okay. Yes, it would have been a comorbidity issue, but don't pretend that that means she just would have died anyway. That's a heartless and ignorant thing to say. <laughs> so, um, so I don't know the right answer to that last question. The last question, how dangerous is this thing really? How much of a threat does it pose to myself, my neighbors, my, my loved ones? And, and because I just lead a small Sunday evening service, it's, it's not that hard for us to meet outdoors. I'm not like Grace with this massive church. So I'm meeting outdoors for that. And I... So I'm, I'm inclined to be very, very open to, to what they're doing at Grace Community Church, even though I'm a little bit hesitant, and that hesitance keeps me from pulling the trigger as well. And so I'm yeah, kind of wait and see. Like you, I'm looking for answers, and I'm hoping for more wisdom. Grayson Fuller says, um, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, is often quoted at people who use tobacco or sometimes those who are just overweight. What is the biblical basis, if any, in maintaining our bodily health? Well, let's look, and I know we're going over an hour, but I, I think I just don't care. First Corinthians, um, First Corinthians six, 
19 and 20 says the following. Let's look at it together, guys. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Well, let's look at the context to figure out what Paul's point is. Why is he bringing up the fact that we are a temple of the Spirit? Let's look at it here. Um, let me back up a little bit. Okay, uh, verse 12 is a good starting point. <clears throat> Now, just so you know, in, in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing, and you need to know this to understand what happens in the next couple of verses. Paul is writing to them, and it seems to be that he is giving a response to things they've written to him, like they've asked him questions. And so in, in 1 Corinthians, he kind of goes through a list of questions they've given him. So that's why he goes, now concerning spiritual gifts. And he'll be like, you wrote this, and you wrote that, and you asked me about these things, here's my answers. So this phrase, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. This seems to be their statements and his responses. So he's like, hey, I'm, I'm not under the law, and I'm, I'm free to enjoy foods and free to enjoy anything God created if I'm thankful, right? Paul, isn't that, isn't that what it means to be in Christ? So all things are lawful for me. And Paul affirms that, yes, all things are lawful, but there are other considerations. Not all things are profitable. So smoking, drinking, eating, lawful, permissible, but is it profitable? Am I doing harm? through the enjoyment of these things. And this would just be the law of moderation, not having too much of anything. Um, and so like if, if a person was smoking um, and they're smoking a pack a day, then absolutely they're violating that. It's not profitable. This is causing harm, right? Also, it would violate the second one. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And this is where the thing that I'm enjoying becomes something that I'm addicted to. That is when it's mastered you. This is like New Testament language for addiction addiction behavior. I'm not going to talk about addiction as a condition here. That's a different issue, but addict addictive type behavior. So I won't be mastered by anything. That would be, that would be then me saying, okay, if I'm smoking a pack a day, I'm totally mastered by this thing. So I can't, I can't stop drinking this wine. Okay. I'm mastered by it. I can't eat a reasonable amount of food. I'm being mastered by it. So that would apply to those things. Then he goes on. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Okay, yeah, food belongs to the stomach and the stomach's for food. This is what we're designed for, sure. But God's going to do away with both of them. This is just to say, you guys, you need to be thinking about God, not your stomach. That's all he's kind of saying. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. My, the purpose of my body isn't, isn't the stomach and food issue. That's just one element of me. I live for Christ. The whole idea of my life is to live for Christ. So I should filter my decisions about how much I eat, about whether I work out or not. Uh, you know, like there's reasons to, to work out that aren't vain. Usually people have vain reasons. I want to look better. But what about someone who works out because they're like, I want to be sharper. I want to sleep better. I want to be a better, so I can be a better father, so I can be a better husband, so I can be a better wife so that I could be more of a clear thinker, so I could have the energy to have my devotions in the mornings because I'm spending my, my time doing right things. Um, I want to be healthy and strong so I can take care of others so that I'll be less of a burden on society and people around me. Like, these are godly reasons to do those things. Now, God has not only raised, up, raised the Lord, but will also raise up, us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? And now he's talking about sexual immorality. May it never be. That's the major, major point he's making here, actually. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her, for he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. I think the context here is the sexual immorality is sexual sin in general is worse than other sins in some specific ways. This, isn't, this shouldn't be controversial for Christians, and we, we should never say that all sin is identical. I, I don't think that's biblical. Um, other sins that you might commit, oh, I lied, right? I, I stole, I cheated, I did these things. But, but this sin, sexual sin, there's like something that you're doing against your own body in that immoral sexual behavior. And that applies to all fornication, uh, out, you know, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, all, all those all those categories are in that same thing. This is a, a grave issue. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, 
for you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And that's the main point. Glorify God in your body. That's what I should ask if, if I'm dealing with issues like smoking or drinking. Am I able to glorify God like this? Can I thank the Lord for this? And so moderation here um, is key in many areas. And then abstinence is key in other areas. Like with, with sexual immorality, it's just abstinence or marriage, right? Proper context. All right, last question. Woolpack says, what is gossip? Is it simply sharing personal information about someone without their permission, even in a nice way? That's how I have understood it to be. Love your videos, Mike. Thank you. Oh, so I think the nature of gossip is that gossip is is tearing down. Gossip is generally a negative thing. So speaking like praise, uh, positive words about another person is a, is, a, is a nice thing. When they're not around to, you know, like let's say someone helps you and then you go and tell other people about the nice thing they did. That's a, that's a kindness. That's a good thing. But gossip is about tearing down. And there's a proverb that, that says, um, I don't know if I'll be able to find it. Um, I wonder if I'll be able to find this proverb. I think it's very um, appropriate, but I, I don't know if I'll be able to find it because I can't remember the exact wording. But the proverb says that... Um, a friend hides, effectively, a friend hides the, the failures or the sin of their friend. Um, I think that, um, or maybe it's even the reverse that says, like, love covers a multitude of sin. Let me, let me see if that's the one. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I can't find it. So um, the idea, though, is if you just read the whole book of Proverbs and you'll find it. It's easy. The idea is this, that um, in general, I want to be careful about tearing others down with my words. In general, I want to be careful with that. There's times where you where you, you do that, right? Because if, and, and these are maybe the exceptions. Like, say I do a video on Kenneth Copeland. Well, Kenneth Copeland is teaching in public and impacting the public. I'm not just gossiping about the guy. I'm directly confronting his teaching so that other people might benefit from it because I care about the people he's impacting. But if Kenneth Copeland is just like my neighbor and he cuts me off, then I go tell everybody how rude he is, that I'm just tearing him down. This is not this is not right. So gossip has to do with ungodly tearing down other people, sharing information. And it's weird how gossip on the lips is like, it's like burns. Um, I've always respect people who, who come to me and they go, oh my gosh, the other day, and then they stop themselves. They go, you know what, I probably shouldn't say. And then they go, yeah, never mind. I have so much respect for someone who says that because that, that means that they're controlling, they're, they're thinking, they're talking, they're not just saying everything they can. So the simple answer of gossip is unnecessary information that tears other people down and doesn't have a real justification for being shared. Um, I think that's it. All right, Lord bless you guys. Thank you so much for joining. Um, this has been the Friday Q&A and, you know, Monday. I'll have my uh, teaching video verse by verse going through the Gospel of Mark. That'll be on Monday. And um, then back on Friday again. I don't think I have a Wednesday video this coming week, but uh, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Thank you so much. And, oh, I'm also, last quick announcement. I'm going to be putting a announcement uh, or uh, some images on Facebook. People were asking me to show other, other of the logo submissions. And I actually didn't show them because most of you guys are really great. But some people in the comments are so weird about me changing the, the logo that I didn't bother showing a bunch of a bunch of pictures of the... So I'm going to go ahead and put that on Facebook and then probably not even read your comments. How's that? Because <laughs> I'm being accused for my, my new logo looks like me. And that's proof that I've become a man pleaser and I'm, I'm self-centered and my ministry is all about me. And I'm just like, I'm not going to fight with you. Just, okay, have fun with that. I know most of you guys know better. Um, at any rate, that's not the point. I don't really want to make it about me, which is why I don't want to sit and debate that issue. Um, okay. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you for joining. Take care.